All right, are we all ready? Now I gotta remember what I say. <laughs> Hi, it's Jennifer Brown. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and welcome to the HR Wonder Woman podcast with Wendy and Ann. Cool. Hello, welcome to the September 2019 edition of HR Wonder Women. I'm your host, Wendy, and with me as always is Anne. Hello, Anne. Hi, Wendy. It's exciting to be talking to you one day after actually seeing you. <laughs> yes, Anne and I just got back from HR Florida where uh, she spoke and I had the privilege of being on their social media team. I'm going to encourage you all to go check out the hashtag because it was a fantastic conference. Way to go, Florida. They made going to Orlando in August enjoyable and I never thought I would say that. They absolutely did. And Wendy, if you're going to encourage people to check out the hashtag, tell us what the hashtag is. The hashtag HRFL19. Shared some great stuff. We got to meet some great people. That's enough about Florida. We have a fantastic guest tonight, and I am super excited to learn more about her and talk with her and share. We have uh, Jennifer Brown with us, and she is a uh, an author, a speaker, all sorts of fun stuff. And so we'll get into her bio in a minute. But first, we always start with our uh, how we identify, because it's important for us to s- share how we see the world. So by knowing how we see the world, we can change how we see the world. I firmly believe that just in how we've changed in the last year. And we were kind of talking about that this last Mm -hmm. week. Yeah. But (laughs) so I will kick us off. I am Wendy. I am white, straight, cisgender, female, Christian, non-disabled. And my pronouns are she, hers, her, and hers. How about you, Anne? Uh, Yeah, so um, my pronouns are also she, her, hers. And uh, one of the things I say every time we do this is, you know, I identify in a lot of different ways. And we were just saying before we hit record that context is so important. And so for the context of this conversation, where we're talking about intersectional feminism, uh, I, I always feel that it's important for me to identify, especially through the lenses of privilege that I wear. So I am white, I am cisgender, I am straight, I am non-disabled. There are more, I can't think what they are, but there are more. I, I, I mean, I often like say half kiddingly, like if you can think of a privilege, I probably have it. So, and, and I just, I think that that's important because like you said, Wendy, the, the way that we identify influences how we see the world. And so what I think you and I are really trying to do is by naming that privilege, be able to see the world while still having that privilege and owning that privilege, not letting it cloud so that we only see through a privilege lens. Um, and that's what's so exciting about doing this podcast together. Yes. Uh, we, we get to hear from so many women that just really open our eyes to new ways of seeing the world and new ways of understanding the world. And um, we get to, to grow and change and hopefully, you know, give women a, a larger platform and hopefully our listeners get to grow and change along with us. Um, and with that introduction, I'm going to introduce our guest tonight, Jennifer Brown. Um, this is one of those nights where we have a guest on that I have never met before. Wendy has interacted with her, but I'm super excited for this evening's conversation. Jennifer Brown is a leading diversity an inclusion expert, dynamic keynote speaker, best-selling author, award-winning entrepreneur, and host of the Will to Change podcast, which uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion. As the founder, president, and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, Jennifer's workplace strategies have been employed by some of the world's top Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits, including Walmart, Microsoft, Starbucks, Toyota Financial Services, T-Mobile, and many others, to help employees bring their full selves to work and feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. Welcome, Jennifer. And I'm going to start off with our first question. I'm going to jump right in. Say, you know, um, we, we know identity matters. We just kind of went through that. So tell us a little bit about how you identify, especially for the purpose of our conversation this evening. Sure. Thank you, Wendy and Anne. I'm happy to be here. Um, I think I may have you beat in the um, the privilege walk and I, I <laughs> we'd have to go toe to toe. We uh, my story is one of extreme socioeconomic privilege, um, and I identify as, as you think we said, non-disabled, I identify as white, I identify as cisgender. I'm also, though, in the LGBTQ community, and I've been in that community and out for about 25 years. Um, and I also think being a woman in business is, is, a, is an interesting identity that comes with its own particular challenges as well. So um, I always think of my identity as a mix of identities, some that carry more or less privilege than others. And I also have come to see them as 
coming with certain uh, needs, but also with certain obligations and responsibilities and opportunities. And I know we'll probably get into talking about what that means a little bit later. But whenever I'm on stage, I try to really do the same that you have all done at the beginning of this episode, which is to not assume and to name the lenses through which you see the world and to be very aware of how those limit us and all the lenses that we don't completely understand and why it's important that we make an effort to understand them and represent them to the degree that we can. Yes, exactly. I I love that. I don't know if I love, but there's so many layers to privilege that Mm. um, we're just kind of now starting to see and break down and and understand. And that's kind of where I'm enjoying the walk um, Mm. is being able to see all of that kind of come to fruition and get better about it and stop keeping our blinders on. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. We may as well talk about it. Although the P yes. word has become kind of a bad word. It causes people in some classrooms to recoil a mm-hmm. bit. And so I do think we have to figure out a way to talk about it in a way that people don't feel so defensive about it, but that it just is, you know, yes. and naming it, I think takes the sting out of it on both sides. And maybe I think what's important to move through is what, then what do you do with it? which I feel like we may maybe have not done such a great job of explaining, <laughs> right? It's just these exactly. people sort of broken and you don't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, so to speak. Yes. I, I like that. Yes. Get the glue. Let's get the yeah, glue. Get the glue. Let's get the glue. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Jennifer, our very first podcast was with Margaret Spence, who is uh, an author and speaker as well, and she's just phenomenal. But she spoke to us um, about the roadblocks that women of color face in the workplace. And, and she specifically, you know, called them concrete blocks. It's not just a bump. It's a block from um, letting people move forward. Talk to us a little bit about the roadblocks that you faced as a member of the LGBTQ community that led you to form your company. Well, I wasn't sure there was a place for me in a lot of different professions. I was originally an opera singer. So that was probably the first time I looked around me and upwards and said, wow, there is no one that I think shares my story or at least is visible about sharing my story and my identity. And I think um, I left opera because of some vocal trouble and surgeries that I had to get. But I, I do think it would have been really difficult for me to kind of feel the burden of carrying a lie around with me uh, vis-a-vis casting directors and um, trying to play the ingenue, which was my vocal type. So it would have been just a a colossal lie that I would have had to keep going for a long time. And this was a while ago. You know, I I really hope it's different now, but there just weren't any women that shared my story um, that were willing to talk about it. And then as a business owner, you know, my name was on the door and I was still closeted <laughs> for much of it. And um, I was I was worried really that my economic viability and, and you know, ability to, to, to survive, let alone thrive, would be compromised. And um, it's interesting too, I can pass. So uh, I express my gender in a feminine normative way. Uh, and I often find that I, it's a big surprise to people when I come out. And so it's become very important to me now that I'm kind of over the hump of covering and passing and being out and now being a proud LGBT owned business, which I'm actually certified as in addition to being certified as woman owned. Um, it's very important to me to not take advantage of the passing privilege that I could take advantage of. And I describe this as, you know, a keynote for a living and I have to walk out on stages and often the audience is full of what I may deem to be maybe an inhospitable group to me, to my message. And, um, you know, I I really, some, some rooms are more comfortable than others, but I view it as really important to make sure I declare and that I'm seen uh, because I know that's critical. And it was something that I didn't really I didn't really have, you know, so I think a lot of us have that sensation of being the only and the, the higher up we get in our respective field, you really literally are the only. Um, but I had these other privileges that I think softened, softened my coming out, like my, my whiteness, for example, my ability status, um, my socioeconomic background, the fact that my family loved me throughout. Um, I had this stability, which was almost like a plush carpet under me. So when I fell, so to speak, coming out and sort of feeling like the bottom is dropping out and that you're basically stepping away from like the script, you know, that you're given, then you, um, but you don't, you don't fall far. So I just think that's an important thing to talk about. And that's how I weave my privilege in, in a way that I hope is instructive for people who don't know what to, how to talk about theirs, especially how it intersects some of their less privileged identities. I think it's important to see it. So as as we start naming it and you see it, it 
it becomes more quote normal because you, we don't know how many others are out there not wanting to be the only and not wanting to be the first. So kudos to you to um, going to those spaces and, and sharing your message. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not always in the mood. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think too, I mean, so something you just said that really like resonated with me was that, that you would have to carry the lie. And I think that it is important to own the privilege of being able to pass in whatever that looks like, you know, because there are different ways that people can quote unquote pass, but the emotional weight of carrying that lie is a really heavy price to pay. And I think sometimes because that ability is a privilege, we forget that there's a cost even to that. That's true. I mean, we call this um, covering in the workplace. We talk a mm-hmm. lot about Kenji Yoshino's research that he did with Christy Smith through Deloitte. A lot of people in my field talk about the um, covering is that downplaying the known stigmatized identity. So even if you're out technically, you can still downplay it all day long. You know, you can Mm -hmm. still minimize it. So you can kind of hide in plain sight sometimes in the LGBTQ community. Same with some folks with non-apparent disabilities. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, Yeah. So there's ways that you can figure out how to make it work, but it does take a toll on you, but it's a subtle, it's a subtle toll. I call it death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's, it's accumulation of, of all the moments of, in a way, kind of not honor, not honoring your authenticity. And it's also, you're putting energy towards navigating this and making decisions about it when you really should be putting all of your energy. We all should be able to put all of our energy towards being present and being everything that we can be. But um, it almost, to me, always feels like you're working double time. You know, you're trying to figure out like you're doing your job, but you're also thinking about your safety and thinking about how to make other people comfortable. And you're trying to remember what have I shared and what haven't I shared and with whom and keeping track of things. (laughs) So it's better to just rip the bandaid off and say, you know, I'm here, I am who I am. And not only that, I believe that my voice is important. You know, I think when I, when I really flipped to knowing that being LGBTQ and that experience would be an asset to me as a consultant. And then I saw so many other people in corporate America, which is my world, kind of using their identity as an asset to advise the company on marketing and product development and sales strategies and recruitment and retention. I realized it was a very powerful differentiator. And so what I would wish is we could all kind of go through that journey and, and kind of flip that uh, value proposition in our, in our hearts and minds and then bring that wisdom to the organizations around us that need us so much. Absolutely. And that's actually a great segue to our next question. Um, you, so you work with companies trying to, that are implementing diversity and inclusion initiatives. And a lot of companies try and do that and then they struggle to hit their metrics. So we're wondering, so what are we getting wrong about diversity and inclusion and are we measuring the right thing? Yeah, this is a classic question. Um, and often when we say DNI or diversity and inclusion, they get conflated, but they're actually two very different things. Mm-hmm. Diversity is the who and it's uh, being invited to the dance. Inclusion is the how or being invited to dance. So diversity is the who, if we can get people in the room, but they don't feel included in the environment that we bring them into, they will eventually leave. So the metrics, I think what they might get wrong is they may focus, overly focus on diversity, right? The representation piece, the demographics, the recruitment. Um, But if you don't care about inclusion and how those individuals are experiencing the workplace environment every day and whether they experience it as an inclusive place. And that's a much harder thing to measure, by the way, but you have to try to measure that too, because what's the point of bringing people in if you can't keep them? Similarly, you could really work hard on inclusion, right? And really put a microscope on metrics for the organizational culture and employee engagement, but you may not be doing a great job of attracting and recruiting Uh, diverse voices and identities. So really what you measure gets done, as we say in the business world. Uh, And so we need to have a dual focus on both of these things and know that they go together and they're both sort of essential to each other. Um, The other thing is we got to be careful about metrics in general. I I like them because sometimes, like I said, what gets measured gets done. If you don't measure it, it doesn't get done. It's a sad 
commentary, but it is true. I would prefer to appeal to people's better nature and appeal to why it's good for business and appeal to people's empathy around learning about different experiences and um, not wanting that for their colleagues. But, you know, in the absence of that, Metrics are very important, um, but you also have to be careful of putting people into roles, over promoting people too quickly without this necessary support or into risky roles that they don't end up really succeeding in. So I think to meet metrics, particularly diverse metrics, you've got to have, if you ask people to leap, you've got to make sure the net appears. And I, I, I just get very concerned about you know, the sort of rapid diversification of workplaces where there's no foundation to support it underneath. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, and I think that it's kind of a both end, right? So if, mm -hmm. it doesn't get, if it doesn't get measured, it doesn't get done. But even for a company that isn't doing the metrics because it, we're not, they're not focused on the ROI and they're not focused on the business case, but they're really focused on the humanity, mm. it still can be hard sometimes to know if you're getting it right. And so I think True. sometimes the metrics come along behind to say, oh yeah, these things that I'm trying are actually working. I'm, I'm on the right track. I wonder what kind of things could a company be looking at to measure if they really wanted to build that foundation first, if they didn't, if it wasn't like, oh, we're going to do this big thing and we need to see a huge return right away. But but, you know, we're willing to be in this for the long haul. We're willing to take the baby steps. <laughs> I love that. You know, what, to, what do we have to do? And how can we know that our baby steps are moving us in the right place? What, would, yeah. what could that look like? That would look like, so I don't know if your audience is going to know what employee resource groups are, but they mm -hmm. are diversity networks. Many of the larger companies and more and more of the smaller companies have them. They're the Women's Network, the LGBTQ Network, the Black Employee Network, et cetera. And um, those are wonderful bottoms-up, um, organic, often networks that form for support and community and, and education. And those are really important to recognize more formally. Because um, if they exist informally and they haven't been recognized, then I think that sends a certain message, right? That these communities don't actually have sort of a, a business value that's worthy of funding or worthy of putting an executive sponsor, you know, in touch with. Um, similarly, you've got to look at the top-down stuff, which is, you know, how much does the leadership team talk about diversity and inclusion when they speak of it? Is it authentically... Uh, spoken about? Um, are they, like we were talking about earlier, what are their metrics and measurements for success? Um, do they just talk about it once and then never again? Um, are they just doing it for window dressing and good marketing? Or are they really, really doing the hard work of looking at internal processes and doing some like pay equity analysis, which is kind of, you know, on the rise, but other sort of systemic looks at certain business as usual policies and practices that may need to be revised. And so that kind of stuff needs to come from the top and needs to be driven with accountability from the top. So I would say that, that if you lack a formal diversity strategy as a company, you need one. And you can do that a lot of different ways. Companies hire us to do that. And my team has a lot of experience doing that. But you can also do it internally with your own leaders and with your HR and talent teams. You can get it done. And then following that strategy, making sure it's relevant to the business, um, being consistent, communicating, over-communicating about it so that people understand it's important. And then making really sure that you don't forget about what we call the frozen and middles. So there's, it's, it's legendary in consultant speak. Um, it's where change efforts go to die, as we say. So mm -hmm. things get watered down, you know, as they make their way down from the top and the energy from the bottom up is not necessarily reaching that middle. Um, middle managers as a group kind of have, they have very short-term goals. They've got to get things done. And it's really hard to get what they might view as extra things on their radar screen to-do list and make those a priority. So you've got to pay some special attention to the middle. And that, that requires some, some, some um, deft, I think, strategizing about how to reach them. And then um, training is not the whole answer, but training on unconscious bias, training on what we mean by inclusive leadership here at this company A, um, that's really important too, because that's where the aha moments can happen, the data can be taught, and the behavior change hopefully takes root and starts to happen. But you know, training has been shown to not have a lot of follow-up and not be very grounded in action. So um, there, there are some limitations to that as well. Um, training is not everything. Although as a trainer, I, I love training. 
<laughs> it's a big part of my background and, and it's where I got my start in this work. So I do love it and I do believe that a good design can accomplish a lot. But um, I think there's probably some designs that have been lacking out there and it's given the whole industry a bit of a bad name. I, I think too often with especially these programs, it's it's a one and done. Like, oh, well, we trained you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> check, check the box. We're done. And that's all you need to learn. Yep, like, you're good. You yeah, know, you're yeah, good. right. And oh, please. <laughs> Three months later, you're cringing because we're right back to where we started and maybe back a little bit because they were just mad that they had to go to class. That's the problem. (laughs) There was a whole article in HBR on why diversity training fails. And we all cringed when we saw that on the cover, believe me. Um, But yeah, I think it's true. And on our side as consultants, we're asked to shrink our programs to like shorter and shorter amounts of time. And magically, they're supposed to work. You know, they're supposed to transform people, you know, and you can't just transform people also just by showing them the science. You know, that's interesting. And it's, okay, we're all biased. Okay, I'm, I'm broken. Thank you very much. Like, you know, what do I do with that? I'm not sure. And now I'm kind of feeling ashamed and bad about myself. And I'm actually feeling less confident about what I'm being asked to go and do. And that's not where we want to leave learners. It's one of those things that anytime I, the uh, last place I worked, anytime, well, they need training. Like, oh my God, he's been to training. He's been to training so many times. Oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I could say one more thing, I think that's like very important, equally with everything I've mentioned and maybe even more is, is intentional mentoring and sponsoring programs. So one of the things that women and people of color, just to name two underrepresented groups in sort of the middle of their career is they're not being pulled up into leadership roles. And that happens with sort of informal networking, you know, and people are sponsoring people, which means to like share your social capital with someone. They're doing it kind of ad hoc, like if they feel like it. I personally would really like companies to be much more structured about every single executive having a roster of high potentials that is curated for diversity so that we make sure we're keeping an eye on talent that may spin out because by the time you're 10 years in, you are exhausted. You are the only and lonely. You know, you have, you hear microaggressions every single day of your life and you're feeling very frustrated that nobody has your back and nobody is telling you the unwritten rules. And this is what is shared traditionally, you know, in a male dominated workplace, it's shared man to man. And when those of us who aren't at the bar late at night or who aren't a member of the golf club or who have kids and family stuff we've got to attend to or whatever the reason is, you know, we're not in those back office conversations where decisions get made, opportunities get shared, et cetera. So I really, really think, and I don't know why I don't see more programs like that. I think people throw their hands up and they say, well, you can't force, you can't force a leader to sponsor someone, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, well, actually it's not forcing, it's inviting you as a leader. It's adding to your job description, the fact that you need to be intentionally fostering and preparing the next generation of leaders to rise up and put you out of a job someday, right? I mean, that's what we should all be working towards. So I don't know why it feels like it's such a chore. I mean, people get get all hung up on chemistry. Um, But if we leave things to chemistry, we're not going to get enough leaders through and up the pipeline. It's just not going to happen to the degree that we need it to. Mm. I agree with that. And that actually talking a little bit too into the next topic, we're kind of um, all about visibility because you were quoted recently in a Boss Betty article and we're going to share that link in the show notes. But you say the diversity of the diversity of voices we hear from the front of the stage means a lot in terms of whether people feel included. And we talked about, you know, the visibility and being being seen and being able to can't you don't know you can do it until you can see someone who looks like you or someone who is like you doing it as well. So let's talk a little bit more about that. How, what can we do as individuals? What, how can we use what we do and what we can to get more of those voices at the front of the stage? Yeah, I think it depends. You know, we were talking about lenses earlier uh, and degrees of privileged identities. It, it kind of depends which place you're coming to this from. For me, I have often thought about um, curating panels that I'm on or conferences where I'm helping to curate speaker lists. I've thought about how can I take a back seat and how can I make sure that a diversity of voices is on the stage instead of me. And that's one way that I can activate my network, challenge myself to make sure I'm bringing uh, different voices than mine because I may be asked to do things a lot, you know, and repeat myself or be the spokesperson for XYZ. And we all know we're, there's no such thing 
as one spokesperson for an identity. Uh, and so I'm really very cognizant of, of which voices aren't being heard, even within the LGBTQ community, I think about that. So that would include my transgender non-binary friends. It would include LGBTQ women of color instead of me, for example. And so I really, really want to use my any opportunity I have to make any choice at all about platforms form. Um, that's, that's one way that I try to share that. And if you're coming from the other side, which is my voice isn't heard and it needs to be heard more, you know, we need to hear, we need to hear you. We need the bravery of all of us to be very vulnerable about our stories and have the confidence that people need to hear our stories and they want to hear our stories and that they matter. And I think, you know, a lot of us struggle with imposter syndrome, thinking that it's not important, thinking that, oh, it's been said before, or I'm really not that unique. And so I think about, you know, the journey I went through thinking my story didn't matter as a failed opera singer who lost her voice and had to get surgery and, I mean, was literally kind of told that like, if you, hey, hey, Jennifer, if you don't use this voice in the right way, we're going to take it away from you. And that's what happened. <laughs> Universe, <laughs> thank you very much. And sort of told me, you're going to use this voice in a different way. That's where you're going to go next. And you've got to go and figure that out. But that was a, a story I didn't think really mattered. And so whenever I encourage other folks, I, I definitely try to make the space for them. And then I try to talk about the, the sharing of our vulnerable stories and why it's so potentially transformative, even though it freak, might freak you out. It's so important for others in the audience to see themselves and their story in you so they can see it to be it. And once you sort of understand that you're part of this larger fabric that you're creating, you know, then I, I hope we'll get more voices on stage that are ready and willing to do that. I love that. I love that. And I think, I think it's so important that we think about that stage really broadly, right? That I think so often people in underrepresented groups get asked to speak about their experience in an underrepresented group. And, you know, your experience as an opera singer has nothing to do with your sexuality, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, right. Exactly. And so to be able to share. And so I think that especially for those of us with privilege to remember, like, this isn't about, oh, we're talking about diversity. So I should have, you know, a woman of color talking about this. But how about we're talking about like, whatever your specialty happens to be, I am not the only person with this expertise. And there's somebody whose voice doesn't get brought up to the stage nearly as often who has the same or probably more expertise than I do in this area. And I should be making a path for them. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Cause we are all a combination of so many things, um, how we were raised, what religion we grew up in, where we grew up all over, you know, all over the world, what kind of family we grew up in, um, how uh, disability has touched our lives, how addiction has touched our lives, mental health issues. So whenever I, I try to think about the sharing of our dimensions, plural, and then thinking, mm -hmm about what do I keep buried about my dimensions and I never talk about them. I think the, the process of uncovering all those and then you know, over time, I think you share more and more. And I think it's an incremental process, honestly. I think there's probably things under my waterline that I'm probably not ready to share yet. I don't think we're, any of us are done. We're constantly, things are constantly happening to us as well in life. Like if I have cancer next year, you know, and I'm unable to do the schedule I have. And, but how do I talk about that then on the stage, in addition to my sexuality, in addition to my history as an artist or as an activist? I mean, being an activist in my early days was, and, and being an artist were two things I kept deeply buried about myself because I was entering the business world as a consultant. And I thought I would be very harshly judged as lightweight if I shared that I had been an artist and also too angry if I shared that I was an activist. So I try to bring all these things into the room now because I'm trying to hold myself accountable to lower my waterline as much as I possibly can. But I really take your point that there's no single identity for any of us. And I think the more we can show all these that we're complex combinations of things, there's going to be one thing that somebody in the audience will be able to connect to in you and you don't have any idea what that one thing is. And that's the part of the fun of you know speaking for a living and doing these things. All the love you get and all the feeling seen that you get and the fact that others in the audience feel seen, and it's, it's in ways that you can't even predict. So true, so true. And it really does tie back even to when you were talking about the importance of mentoring and that leaders need to be um, intentional about bringing up the next, you know, the next generation, bringing up their own successors and intentional about diversity in that because there's so much 
research that shows that knowing somebody is what makes the difference. And that's the, the danger of that old boy network is that, you know, only the old boys ever knew each other. But the more, <laughs> the, the more that, that leaders get to see the folks that they could be bringing up as full and complete people, yeah. not just an employee, not just somebody that does this work but sees mm-hmm. them as a full human being, mm-hmm. um, the more likely they're going to, to see them as somebody that they want to mentor and bring up and can envision them as their successor. That's right. I mean, you could have more in common with someone who visibly looks like a totally different ethnicity than you, totally different generation than you, but you could have something huge in common, right? So I think lowering our waterline like allows for that, connect, that unexpected connection to be made. And like you say, to be viewed as whole people because that's really what we are. So um, we're not just our color. We're not just our, or we're not just our whiteness. You know, I'll walk into right. full rooms of white people. And, you know, I think in the past, I might have made a lot of assumptions about how much that group of people know. And I would have been probably wrong about this topic. So, you know, I've been checked many times and we, you know, I think a lot of us have been challenged in the last couple of years to ask ourselves, um, when we talk about inclusion, are we including everyone? And what, and what does that really mean? Are we really walking the talk or are we just kind of hanging out with people who have similar views as we do and, or similar community groups because it's easier to hang out with birds of a feather? <laughs> and certainly it is, but, and it's harder to bridge, you know, it's harder. It certainly requires a different skill set, but that's where we really have to go. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that idea of lowering the waterline. That's just, it's so powerful. So let's talk a little bit about, we saw that your company is up for a panel at South by, South by Southwest uh, and it's called Courage, Self-Care and Authenticity at Work. And one of the statements in the session description that really caught our attention uh, says, taking mental health, privacy and gender identity into consideration, how do you signal allyship and embrace representation without triggering or tokenizing? <laughs> so, um, so tell us, how do you, I know, how right. You I, I know you want a like nice, neat little secret? answer to that. <laughs> That's what the panel is for. <laughs> no. Right, right, right. right. So, so talk about as much of that as you can. Yeah. It's, um, well, it's a big concept, right? Yeah. It's, um, this yeah. is honestly the question I get all the time and let's just pick, you know, privacy and gender identity. You know, when, mm-hmm. a, when a manager comes up to me and says, okay, I get what you're talking about that. Um, I just learned a word from you, cisgender. Thank you. Cause most people in my audiences don't know what that word means. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we talk about sh- the sharing of pronouns like we did at the top of this episode. And they say, I feel awkward. I don't want to make assumptions about people. How do I bring this up out of the blue with my team? I want to be an ally, but I don't want to you know, make somebody uncomfortable and trigger them, or I don't want to tokenize people, make them feel conspicuous. You know, so I, I really feel for them. I mean, we're asking people to do a learn kind of a whole new language, um, at the very least when it comes to pronouns. Um, and then we're asking them to kind of act as if this is normal and then make it normal and make it normal by talking about it, but in a way that doesn't do any of those things that I just said. So, <laughs> so it's really interesting. Um, I try to model it and I try to explain that that the incoming generation that's coming into the workplace for them pro- declaring your pronouns is part of the way they show up in the world. And the business world couldn't be further behind on that. We're going to have and are having clashes around what we mean when we say bring our full selves to work or bring our authentic selves to work. And we have managers who are really out of step and we've got young people who presume that inclusion is a priority. And so in school, they've all said, oh, my name is Jennifer Brown and my pronouns are she, her, hers and sort of get on with the business of the day. But this is like one of the hardest mountains, I think, for managers to climb, especially if you are a you know straight, straight cisgender person, for you to act natural about it and have it sort of woven into the way you lead and the way that you're a colleague and, this, and knowing how to create a safe space for people. It's all very new. So I just would say, we just have to remember that, you know, that we're, some of us have this conversation all day long, but most people... People, and this is what my second book really hits on is mo- the vast majority of people are behind at least where I am and things I want to be talking about and my own evolution. I've got to remind myself that I've got to go back and explain like, what is the power of sharing a pronoun? What does that even mean um, as a signal of allyship? Um, that just blows people's minds. I'll tell you in my keynotes. So um, if you're speaking to an activist uh, or a nonprofit or an academic audience, they're going to be much more with you because this conversation is happening regularly in those quarters. But in the corporate world, not so much. 
So I, I, liked, I like the example of pronouns because it's so concrete. It's so necessary. One in every five people, I think I, I read uh, under the age of 35, identifies as non-straight and non-cisgender. So one out of five. And so that helps to share numbers like that with audiences because then they also kind of pay attention and say, oh my goodness, like I can't ignore what she's talking about. I need to figure it out. And then I say, I say to them, if you have a teenage kid, go home and talk to them about this because they will explain the whole thing to you. They'll tell you what intersectionality is. They'll, <laughs> they'll help you because they have friends who identify as gender non-binary. Um, who knows? Your kid may come home one day and say, hey, guess what? You know, and I, I always say too, you want to be prepared for the change. You don't want change to happen to you, particularly if you're a person that's lived a fairly, what you consider a life of ease and, and you can't relate to certain identities and, and you're, you have more privilege. You've got to get ahead of the changes that are happening around you and figure out how you're going to communicate into them in a way that's, that's accurate, that's respectful, and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to need to apologize and that's okay. Um, but you're going to need to earn people's trust so that they, you know, give you that good feedback and they take you back when you do apologize and they give you another chance. So, <laughs> so that's my, that's my tough love message to uh, the folks in the audience. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of, a lot of confusion and fear right now and therefore hesitation to have the conversations that matter. And that's what worries me the most. That's what I'm like trying to really unlock with my work these days. I, I'm like trying to think there's so, there's so much to that. Yes. There's a lot there. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's a lot there. A lot to, a lot oh, yeah. A like lot a smidge of my life every day. Right. Like and that was smidge. just the pronoun conversation. And that didn't even touch on like mental health. The the key in all of that is the idea that we, we just have to talk about it. Yes. We have to um, normalize talking about you it. You know, exactly. if we just take, take this away from, yeah, take the stigma away from just having the conversations. I mean, one of the things that Wendy and I try and do is model screwing up, right? Like you're going to yep. make mistakes. You're going to oh, say the wrong thing. Good. And it's cool. Like, I love like, that you do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's okay. Come, come along on this journey with us. You can mess up too. And we'll yes. all be fine, right? Because that fear of making a mistake, that fear of how embarrassed you might be, it freezes people. It does. There's a lot of frozen people right now, yeah. a lot of paralyzed people. And then a lot of people that are pulling back from engaging with coworkers. You know, there's a disturbing study out of Lean In that they've done now two years running in response to sort of the Me Too environment. Men are pulling back from those one-on-one -on -one workplace relationships with female colleagues, you know, whether that's mentoring or sponsoring or being on a team together or traveling together. And it's mm -hmm. such a fear-based response. And it's exactly the opposite of the response that we want, which is I'm not, I'm not going to acquiesce to the fear and I'm not going to pull away. I'm actually going to push into this because it's important, but I'm going to know that I'm going to get some things wrong, like you just said, and I'm going to normalize getting things wrong and that I'm not going to get scared if I do some things wrong and I need to apologize and somebody calls me out, hopefully somebody calls me in, right? Which I prefer. Mm -hmm. Right. For that a lot. Give us a chance. Don't shame us publicly with our mistakes. You know, there has to be some kind of dual flexibility there and some kind of mutual space holding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've got to do that for each other. And that's really a two way street that I, I'd like to see. I'd like to see a lot more of. <laughs> so <laughs> somebody, somebody ventures into your space and wants to learn more. What is your response and how can you be con have a, a constructive uh, engagement with that person? It's interesting. Some of the men in my world are really advocate advocates and they really want to do more. And so they show up to the women's network meeting and they're the only man there. And one guy just told me, he said, I didn't want this to happen, but I all of a sudden all eyes turned to me and I became the subject of the whole meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to sit in the back and learn. Right. You know, so there's just so much awkwardness, you know, like, why are you here? And like, are you, we don't want you here. This is our safe space. So people know, I mean, they sense there is, you know, what does a white would-be ally do when they want to learn about the experience of friends and colleagues of color? Mm -hmm. How do learn that? I often say in my book, I say, go and learn it on your own as much as you humanly can. You know, you don't want to cause too much emotional labor for other people to teach you. So right. you need to go and consume media. You need to read articles. You need to watch movies that aren't about your culture, that feature mm -hmm. lead characters and stories about other cultures. You know, you need to kind of learn all that privately so that you have some kind of baseline. And then really you should only be asking and checking in for tweaks from the people in your life, but you should do 80% of the work and have 
have that done uh, before you ask for you know that support because you got to remember the person you're asking support for is also supporting a million other people and is probably always everybody's go-to right, right about their identity and we want to yes. avoid that. Yeah. And the the other thing that I heard recently is like, pay, pay for it. If you really want a person of color and you really want like pay them for their time and their labor and their expertise, Mm -hmm. because there are people of color out there that are doing this for a living and are willing to take the time. Mm -hmm. Like don't expect your friends to give it to you for free. So true. true. Uh, Thank you. Um, And you can listen to our podcast. That's right. There you go. That's right. Uh, well, Jennifer, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of the uh, the podcast, which is our question connection. And here Yay. at HR Wonder Women, we have it with a nice little female twist because that's important. It's important to lift all female voices, and we use this opportunity to do that. But the most, the main focus for HR Wonder Women and HR Social Hour is connection. And so we want to ask you about how networking has helped your career. What's been really effective for you? Oh my gosh, I'm an extrovert, so I love networking. <laughs> my partner thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> But it's really so, so important. I know that's been said a million times. You know, I've, I've really gotten a lot out of conferences. I have to say, you know, when I was very sort of cash poor, I still got myself on planes. I volunteered to, to work registration at conferences. I volunteered to lead panels, put panels together, be in like a breakout room, like way down the hall that nobody came to. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I would just work my butt off to meet people in my field, meet people that I would ultimately, that would ultimately become my clients, just give away a lot. And so I also wrote a couple white papers early in my company's history and we gave them away for free because it was important to me to give back into the field and the community of, peop- of people who do this work as practitioners. And I, I just wanted to make the field better. And so it was the way that I kind of got my name out there in a way that felt generous. And it wasn't like cold calling, which a lot of us in business like have to do when you work for yourself, you know, you live and die by your sales. But it was a way to build connections, give before I asked for anything. And then um, the conference tip is just, you know, make yourself invaluable to conference or organizers and you can eventually become somebody they go to for certain topics and will start to invite you for things. And and it's much easier to be the one person that's being seen by a lot of people at once, you know, so if you can get yourself in the front of the room, that's effective versus maybe, you know, being in the back of the room and trying to meet everybody in the audience, which you can also do. Uh, but, I, but I always just found that the best place to make those connections was in making myself visible in the market. And, you know, that was less effort for me and it was a comfortable spot for me given I speak for a living. And I understand this is not comfortable for everybody, but go where the fish are that you want to be swimming with. (laughs) I like that. Yes. I love that. I love that. That's so every episode we find that there's like one little quote that's going to stick with us. So on some future episode, we'll be talking to somebody else about networking and we're going to be saying, well, you know, like Jennifer Brown says, go where the fish are. (laughs) That's right. Um, I have to say, I'm so excited that you're an extrovert because week after week after week after week, we get guests who say, well, I'm an introvert. I don't really like networking. And I'm always sitting there saying, what? 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 I'm a total extrovert. Like, I (laughs) could talk to everybody. Um, I know. We're, and that's a diversity dimension, by the way. Like I really, I try to be inclusive of that when I describe those can make you really uncomfortable if you're an introvert working with a bunch of extroverts or vice versa. So, um, and it's something you may hide and you may cover and it may exhaust you to do so, which is really interesting. So um, don't stick me in, you know, in front of a spreadsheet all day long or you'll kill me, you know? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but what is interesting is the theme. So, right. So you're an extrovert and you can talk about getting up in front of the room and all of that and I'm totally there with you. Mm. And the introverts might cringe at that, but the common theme is make those connections, making connections. And so I think making connections in whatever way is authentic for you, whether that is the person up on stage or that is the person who's handing out paper to people as they walk in the room and that one-on-one-on-one direct is, is the better way for you. Whatever is authentic, it's making connections and not what can I get from you, but how can we make a real connection and what can I give to you? Yeah, Um, And then that comes back around. That's right. It always comes back around and it's so much easier to give. I mean, people will be so much more eager to speak to you if they feel you can be helpful to them. And and then it causes us to think about, well, how can I be helpful to people? And that that causes a good creative process, I think, because we all have something that we can do for someone. You know, when we we could all be mentoring and sponsoring others, no matter where you are in your career, 
So we think we speak of that as an executive competency, but I literally think about who, how am I sharing my social capital today? And am I doing it in an intentional way with somebody that really, really needs it? That's not going to get it from another place. Like that's the question I ask myself. And you can ask yourself that early in your career because there's always somebody that's coming up behind you. That's so powerful. So tell us which women you read or follow for professional insight. Well, uh, at risk of sounding like a cliche, I do love Brene Brown. I love her. Do you get <laughs> that a lot? The call out. We need to put the call out. Brene, yeah. come on. You need to come on the show. Wow. I mean, she just is so real. And so, uh, and her, her message of vulnerability is per, she is talking about diversity without kind of being a diversity consultant. It's literally like she's right on point, um, what she's talking about all the time. So, um, yeah, I just really enjoy her speaking and, um, I love how the business world has embraced her. She's the one that ha- I think has kind of gotten through a certain knothole to be respected and listened to. And so I think there's also a lesson there and in watching how she presents the ideas and not just the ideas, um, which I'm always fascinated by because I think it's, I always say the messenger is as important as the message. And so sometimes that's why sometimes I'll step aside and believe it or not, in my consulting work, sometimes the client will say, we need a straight white guy to come in and do this training because nothing else has worked. <laughs> we tried everything <laughs> else, you know, and that, and we, we have those on our team. I have some wonderful straight white men on my team and, but we, we challenge their thinking, of course, but sometimes it is the right answer maybe. So the messenger and the message, and you want to kind of have that's another reason to have a broad network of people because if it's not you that's the right messenger, can you recommend somebody who is the right messenger for the same message? I like that. And it, I mean, it's true. We need everyone having say having this message out there, even the straight white males. They need to, oh, yeah. we need to see them saying this as well. Oh, we really do. We need to help them find the language. And it's just like riding a bike and falling off the bike and getting back on. I mean, they're in that space right now. Yep. So they're not going to learn alone, nope. really. So we, we, somebody's got to help them. <laughs> <laughs> so a favorite movie that features a strong female cast. Has anyone said Ocean's 8 yet? I don't think so. Oh, it's so good. It's so empowering to see just a, a, a diverse female cast working together, pulling off this, you know, caper and, <laughs> you know, just being badasses. Like it's so, um, it's kind of like, you know, I have to bring up my other favorite fictional character, well, not fictional, um, Gentleman Jack is an incredible show hmm. on HBO uh, that features a real life gay woman that lived in the early 1800s who married her wife in secret. This is all true. And uh, managed her family estate and managed all the business affairs and um, negotiated and, you know, with stood down men, you know, that we, she was surrounded by, obviously. It's just so, there's something about seeing women that are just rocking it, have no fear. <laughs> like she wears flat shoes and she strides around and she's like, you know, really, she refuses to wear the, the very uptight garb of the day. And so, you know, people are kind of scared of her and also in awe of her. And then all the women are in love with her, of course. She's just this like really unique character that I didn't even know I really needed and craved to see. But when you start to see that, there's legions of women, I think, who just sort of unlocked and opened up all of this enthusiasm and the the show was very successful. So I still get supercharged when I read about like female pilots. If I'm on a plane and there's a female pilot, I'm like the happiest person ever. (laughs) It's just, it's like, wow, like how did you get to be this? Like, what is your story? And how much did you have to go through to get to where you are? Like, I just, I need to like bow down to them because we all know, like, it's just so unlikely. Unlikely people are my inspiration. I mean, they just, I just love those kinds of stories. Hidden figures, same thing, you know, just incredible stuff. That is awesome. Mm. How about a favorite female musician or band? Well, did we watch the VMAs a couple nights ago? Hello, Lizzo. Oh, right? (laughs) Lizzo all day. All day day. So yes. great. Like so body positive. So, yes. and, and the, the love she gets on Twitter is so amazing that fans yes. are like, you help me feel seen. You know, I think she, I'm not sure she like set out to do this, but just in the way she is, it's literally mm-hmm. this unmet need that is so pervasive. Um, and I just love seeing that interaction and the way she responds to it is really lovely. So anyway, it's just, uh, she's perfect. So you've talked a little bit about favorite protagonist, although she was real. So favorite uh, female protagonist in a book 
or a favorite female fictional character? You know, I just started this book, but for obvious reasons, I'm super into it. It's Alexander Chi's Queen of the Night. And the character is an unlikely opera superstar in Paris in the 19th century. And it weaves together opera and history and identity. So I, I'm loving it. I'm not going to spoil it, but I would, I would highly recommend it. It's a great, it's turning out to be a great read. So final question, what do you like to do outside of work? And we think that this is a really important question, getting back to our conversation earlier about being fully human and having so much dimension. So tell us about what you like to do outside of work. Well, as an entrepreneur, there's not much outside of work. (laughs) You've gotten that answer. Um, it is your your child, truly, um, and we don't have human children, so um, it gets it gets all of my love. But I love hot yoga. I love the practice of that. Um, I love the challenge of staying in a hot room and the, the <laughs> of that. I know it's crazy. Um, I love. I find as a Manhattanite, I'm a city mouse, so I've really got to get some green in my life on a pretty regular basis and smell nature and you know, feel that I can kind of hug a tree for a while and absorb some of that good energy. Um, and uh, my partner works at an animal sanctuary up in the Catskills, north of New York City. So we get to go up there oh, and awesome. out with rescue farm animals who have been rescued from cruelty and abuse. And they free range now and they spend the rest of their lives in the sun, comfortable and, you know, with nothing being asked of them. So it's just a lovely, a lovely reminder of, of a totally different existence that's um, important to them and also important in terms of how we protect them in the world and hopefully eat less meat. So it's the, that's the goal. Well, I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer, that is, this. that's the show. I love everything that you've shared. I can't wait to listen to it again because oh, I, there's so many great things that, that you've shared with us. And I so appreciate you taking time tonight to uh, to do this. And I'm sure others are going to want to learn more about you as well. So if you would, please share how our listeners can find you or get in touch with you. Well, thank you. I would love to. Uh, I have a new book out, my second. It's called how, how to Be an Inclusive Leader. It came out August 20th. It comes along with an assessment. So if you open the book, it's, and I'll tell you now what the link is, it's inclusiveleaderthebook.com. And it's a free assessment. And then when you read the book, it has a model in it that has four stages in it and will help you kind of locate yourself in the journey. And um, it, it talks about a lot of the stuff we talked about today, actually. So I think people will enjoy it. My first book was called Inclusion from 2016. So if you love how to be an inclusive leader, you might want to go back to that one too. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Jennifer Brown. On Instagram, I'm at Jennifer Brown Speaks. Uh, I have a podcast, like you mentioned, thank you, called The Will <laughs> to Change. Yes. We have such interesting people from all different walks of life, but a lot of authors, actually. I find I bring a lot of authors and speakers on there and we we jam on what diversity means to us personally and the changes that we're seeing in the world and for the future. And then Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find me at Jennifer Brown Consulting. Uh, How about you, Anne? Uh, these days, you can find me on Twitter. That is the primary place that I hang out. Find me at A-N-N-E-T-O-M-K, Anne Tonk. And that is the primary place. Find me on LinkedIn. You might find me on Facebook, but I spend most of my social media time on Twitter. I'd love to connect. And you can find me on Twitter. I am Wendell93 or my blog, mydailyjourney.com. Of course, daily, D as in dog, A-I-L-E-Y. Please don't forget to rate, review, and share this episode with others to spread the word about HR Social Hour and, of course, HR Wonder Women. Let's get the voices of women out there. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Anne, as always. I love these talks. And for the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast and HR Wonder Women, this is Wendy. Now, go tell your story.